Welcome back to Poem Peeps, everybody. We're here again with another case episode, and we're very excited to work through it together uh, with all of us and with you listening. Yeah, so great to be back, Firth. And today's episode is a bit more ICU focused than some that we've done in the past, and super excited for this change of pace. Yeah, me too. And clearly, we're all huge lung nerds. That's part of the reason uh, we love being in the ICU, thinking about lungs and the ventilator. But being in the ICU, we obviously have all the other organs that play a huge role. And you know, today we're going to focus on our favorite legume-shaped organs, the kidneys, you know, which obviously in the ICU becomes a huge issue for lots of our patients. And we're joined today by two great guests to help us think through a case that involves the kidneys and, and a critically ill patient. So first, we have Luke Hedrick, who is an internal medicine resident at BIDMC and is a rising pulmonologist and intensivist applying for fellowship this year. So everybody, you know, keep that name uh, in, in your back pocket if you're a program director. He's graduated from Georgetown University and was AOA from Wake Forest School of Medicine. He's currently interested in medical education and digital platforms for education, which, of course, we are big fans of. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. Thanks, Steve. Really happy to be here. Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Jeff William. Jeff is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where he is also the associate director of the Nephrology Fellowship Program. He completed a medical education research fellowship at Harvard Medical School and is very involved in residency, fellowship, and medical student education. And I can say that Jeff is probably one of the only nephrologists I know who will dress up as a banana for his medical students on potassium day. It's so great to have you on the show today, Jeff. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited to dive into this case with you. Yeah, absolutely. So as always, this case is not meant for medical advice. Our opinions are our own and don't reflect our employers. And the case is HIPAA compliant. Some details have been changed to protect the identity of our patient. So let's dive in. Luke, can you tell us a little bit about this patient that you met? Yeah. So we have a man in his 40s with a past medical history of asthma, hypertension, and acid reflux who was brought in by EMS with back pain and profound proximal lower extremity weakness. He reports that some mild weakness in his legs started about two days ago, but this morning it acutely worsened to the point that he can't lift his legs out of the bed. He also has some cramping pain in his thighs. He additionally has had some mild shortness of breath and yesterday went to an urgent care where he was given steroids and swabbed for COVID, which was negative. Dave, what do you think so far? Yeah. So, you know, I'm used to now seeing patients who are up in the ICU and been worked up, but, you know, putting on my EM hat from residency or and my IM hat from training and residency and practicing afterwards, you know, this is a scary presentation. This is a patient who's coming in, uh, he's having lower extremity weakness, always something that can be really scary. And especially in the setting of back pain, um, the first thing that comes to mind for me in these situations is spinal cord compression. And I feel like I worry about that because, you know, in that situation, the time to making the diagnosis is really important for relieving what's causing it and preserving function. So that's the first thing that comes to me. Uh, the, the next thing that sort of strikes me about his presentation is that in addition to those symptoms, weakness and pain, he's also having shortness of breath. And so anytime you hear lower extremity weakness and shortness of breath, I start to think of, about the respiratory muscles. Is the diaphragm working well? Are the accessory muscles of breathing working well? And I think about conditions that could have onsets that cause that, you know, Guillain-Barre, new myasthenia, Lambert-Eaton syndrome. These are things that, you know, can cause us at times. 
And then after those two things, I'm also thinking about things that can lead to a, an acute onset of myopathy or weakness. And, and these are usually sort of systemic disorders. And those systemic disorders, they think about toxins and poisoning. You know, uh, I, I've never seen organophosphate poisoning outside of an OSCE, but, you know, because onsets quickly and something that comes to mind. Uh, I also think about endocrinopathies and electrolyte abnormalities, things that can have sort of an acute onset of these types of symptoms and, and a couple of systemic findings that go along with it. So I think there are all sorts of different approaches for how you think about weakness. Um, some people go through systems, some people go through anatomic, but just the, off the top of my head, those are my initial impressions for this type of patient. Christina, is there any other information you would want? Thanks, Luke. We're definitely going to need some more testing. But first, I'd want to start narrowing the differential by considering more features of the history that you presented and then jumping to a quick exam. The key history questions I have are about any recent trauma, any associated symptoms, specifically urinary retention, bowel or bladder incontinence, difficulty going to the bathroom, numbness in the lower extremities in addition to the weakness, and any changes elsewhere. Also, I'd love to know about the progression from two days ago. You know, is this um, ascending, same distribution, but worsening? So definitely want to get some more clarifying questions on that. And in general, the medical history would be helpful just to know him as a substrate. For example, has he had prior back injuries or surgeries before? Does he have any autoimmune diseases or anything that makes him prone to electrolyte abnormalities? Does he use any substances um, or supplements? And then on exam, certainly a more detailed neurological exam looking for some red flag features such as step-offs or severe back tenderness, saddle anesthesia, reduced rectal tone, and any changes in reflex. Yeah, guys, if you'll allowed the nephrologist to cut in here, I, I completely agree with all these thoughts. You know, I we take care of, you know, the full patient as well as their kidneys. So, you know, the, these etiologies are, it's a daunting list, right? I mean, the workup is extensive. There's so many things to think about. I, I think to boil it down, it, we seem to all be in agreement that this is a neuromuscular problem of some sort. Um, it seems to be kind of most profound in the bilateral lower extremities. And and I think our central question is what condition would cause so much leg weakness over such a short period of time? You know, an otherwise pretty healthy young man should have enough strength to get himself out of his own bed, right? Yeah, that's a, a great point. So for some more information, he reports the weakness came on a few days ago, but initially wasn't that bad. He had essentially been eating normally and his diet rather consists mainly of frozen meals. On review of systems, he denies any incontinence, constipation, numbness or tingling in his legs. He hasn't had any fevers, and he doesn't use any injection drugs, and he hasn't had any trauma to the back either. No recent fevers, chills, or URI symptoms, and he hasn't had any abdominal symptoms, no abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. And I should mention this because it all happened pretty quickly. He did report urinary retention in the ED on his review of systems, and they found a PVR, a post-void residual of 400 cc's. So because of that and the symptoms, by the time we saw him up in the ICU, he had already had an emergent MRI, and there was no spinal cord abnormalities, no cauda equina, and no compression. His past medical history, like we mentioned, is notable just for the asthma, hypertension, GERD, and he's had a cholecystectomy in the past. For his home meds, he uses albuterol, PRN, He's on HCTZ, 25 milligrams a day. He uses omeprazole twice a day. He 
He has magnesium that he takes 400 milligrams of twice a day, some vitamin D, some cyanocobalamin, and some folic acid. He's not aware of any drug allergies, and his family history is unremarkable. In terms of the social history, he's a current smoker, smokes about half a pack per day, doesn't use any alcohol, uh, and as we said, no injection drug use. No significant occupational exposures, and he lives at home alone. Awesome. Thanks, Luke. That was a really great, you know, succinct summary of the things going on with him. I, I love Jeff's point of, you know, like framing it, you know, we're seeing sort of like neuromuscular weakness. And I think the stuff that you gave us starts to give us a, a way to start crossing things off, you know, in, in neuromuscular weakness, uh, mentioned sort of different ways of approaching the differential. I sort of take that vitamins approach where I'm looking at different systems and kind of going through, but there's also that approach of thinking about the actual neuromuscular junction. Um, and it's interesting that you add the post void residual that makes me think about a much more systemic process. And with an MRI that shows no compression, it's not like I can uh, blame this on a central process that's going on. So my differential, I'm kind of going through ticking off different things and I'm still trying to figure out what could cause sort of uh, a weakness that's affecting the lower extremity, a little bit of dyspnea, but then also difficulty voiding and, and thinking more about sort of systemic etiologies that we listed before. Nothing sort of pops out as a slam dunk. You know, um, I'll say albuterol can theoretically have some effect on potassium and electrolytes, but I've never actually seen that in practice. And I've never used that as a treatment in the ICU because I think it's such a minimal effect. He's on a lot of vitamin supplements for a young man. And, and so it makes me wonder if he's had issues with this in the past. He's on magnesium supplements. Did he ever have low magnesium? Could that be playing a role? Um, he also is on vitamin B and folate. Did he have you know, alcohol use history? Did he have anemia in the past? And could these be relating to his current presentations? Um, he's also on hydrochlorothiazide for his hypertension. You know, in a young person, usually I think of this as uh, a pretty benign medicine, but I know it can have some side effects. Jeff, I think you'd probably know a lot more about these than I would. Could you just tell us about what you think about for patients on a thiazide diuretic? Yeah, absolutely. So a thiazide diuretic is, of course, one of the first line antihypertensive medications that we give uh, to patients. Um, and it's, this is a pretty typical dose of hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, but as you know, I mean, there are definitely a few electrolyte issues that we need to consider when patients are on thiazide diuretics. Um, and most of them are, are hypo, right, because we're losing these electrolytes in our urine. So, you know, I agree with you that the fact that he's on a magnesium supplement does make me wonder a bit about prior hypomagnesemia. Although I, I, I have to say that it's pretty unusual, except in our clinics and, and nephrology, that people are even really checking magnesium levels. I, I find that many people are taking magnesium because they were told it was going to be helpful in some way. They're having cramps at night, something like that. So it's possible he's just on it because he was told it might help him in some way rather than having true hypomagnesemia. Uh, but certainly hydrochlorothiazide is a known cause of hypomagnesemia, which can lead to both cardiac and neurologic instability, though not typically the weakness that we're seeing in this case. Of course, we're all familiar with hypokalemia as a side effect of hydrochlorothiazide and thiazide diuretics in general. And this combination of hypomag and hypokalemia is a pretty common one. You know, in normal physiology, magnesium is preventing the loss of potassium in the distal part of the nephron. And when you have less magnesium around, more potassium is allowed to be excreted. So that's why clinically we, we've always 
heard that you have to replete the mag before you can get that potassium back to normal. And um, that's a physiology that, that kind of backs that up. I also should mention calcium, right? Because we always think about calcium when we're thinking about muscles and neuromuscular junctions, right? Calcium is, is integrally involved in that. So you can theoretically have significant muscle weakness from either hypocalcemia or hypercalcemia, depending on how severe they are. And of course, you can get mild hypercalcemia from a thiazide, but it's not typically high enough to cause a presentation like this, unless there's something else systemically at play, like you say, Dave. Thanks so much, Jeff. And I think that's such a great pearl to remember about how magnesium prevents the loss of potassium in the distal nephron and remind ourselves of why many of us reflexively replace magnesium without having a level in someone presenting with severe hypokalemia. So Luke, can you tell us a little bit more about our patient's physical exam? On exam, his vitals were relatively unremarkable. His temperature was 98.4, heart rate was 79, and he was normotensive at 110 over 49. Respirate was 21, and he was satting 93% on Remer. In general, his exam was pretty unremarkable. His MSK exam had no deformities in his back and just some mild paraspinal tenderness. For his neuro exam, because I feel like that's where the, the money is just based on the conversation we've been having, he was ANO times three, Cranial nerves 2 through 12 were intact. His strength was 5 out of 5 in his bilateral upper extremities. He had 5 out of 5 dorsiflexion and plantar flexion of his feet, but his hip and knee flexion and extension were both just 3 out of 5. The same with his hip abduction and adduction as well. Sensation was normal. His rectal tone was intact, and he had normal reflexes throughout. Christina, what do you think about this? Thanks, Luke, for that question, and by no means am I a neurologist, so I don't want to overstate my strength exam. However, this does seem notable for a few things. I try to just describe things generally when thinking about strength exams, and this seems like it is symmetric, isolated, proximal lower extremity weakness. It's also helpful to think that the deep tendon reflexes are intact. So given that the MRI is normal and this is bilateral, it seems like an isolated CNS lesion is off the table. Also, some disorders I think of as more distal, like Guillain-Barre, as Firth mentioned, or upper extremity cranial nerve associated seem less likely, such as myasthenia. For proximal symmetric weakness, I really lean towards myopathies. And this could include inflammatory myopathies, rhabdomyolysis, medication side effects, Specifically in the ICU, we often see steroid-associated or um, effects from paralytics or neuromuscular blockade that we use. The acute onset, though, is interesting. In addition to inflammatory, I do wonder about endocrinopathies, toxins, and electrolyte abnormalities that can do this. I definitely want some labs, including extended electrolytes, a TSH, CK, and to look for any myoglobin in the urine. All right, so here are the labs. His CBC was normal. The CK was only mildly elevated in the 300s. And then we checked a whole bunch of chemistries for him. So his sodium was a little low at 132. Chloride was in the 80s. His bicarb was 28. And his creatinine was 1.04, which was not too far off from his baseline. BUN was 7. Um, and his potassium was less than assay. Um, so the lower limit on this test was 1.5. So it was somewhere below that. Um, his transaminases were normal. Alkfos was a little elevated at 126. Total protein was 7.2. The albumin was a little low at 3.2. 
and the lipase was minimally elevated at 79. Whoa. All right. Well, time to get him some potassium. Uh, lower than assay, I think, is like one of those electrolyte MRIs you don't see very much um, and definitely makes me concerned. I think in these cases, I also am always getting an EKG right away. We know with both low and high K, we worry about arrhythmias. Um, we have been talking through a little bit of a differential, but the main manifestations of low potassium are sort of muscle weakness, and you can even get sort of a rhabdomyolysis sort of CK leak from it, um, and cardiac arrhythmias. Uh, they also can have some GI complaints uh, and due to the effects on in GI intestinal musculature, but those are the main things in low K. So for this patient, we may have an answer for everything going on, and I would definitely love to get a, a EKG right away and make sure he's doing okay. Uh, so we did get an EKG for him. Uh, it was really interesting. So he had a normal rate and a sinus rhythm, but he did have a prolonged PR interval at 154, and he had widespread ST depressions and T-wave flattening. Thanks so much for sharing, Luke. And we'll definitely try to put the EKG up on um, our sites for the listeners to also see. But I think many of us are more familiar with hyperkalemia, uh, specifically in the ICU setting. So just a reminder for those, we could see peak T-waves, widen PR intervals, as well as QRS duration, and eventually loss of P and formation of sine wave um, with increasing severity of hyperkalemia. But I think this is a great time to remind our listeners of what we can see on hypokalemia. So Luke, can you go ahead and go over those changes um, that we may see um, on an EKG in someone with severe hypokalemia? Definitely. So there are kind of four cardinal things you start to think about on an EKG when you have a patient with really profound hypokalemia like this. So the first is a prolonged PR interval, which our patient had. Um, it was 154. You can see widespread ST depressions and T-wave flattenings ultimately leading to T-wave inversions, uh, which our patient had as well. You can get prominent U-waves, which is a positive deflection after the T-wave. That has to be one to two millimeters or about 25% of the T-wave it comes after. Our patient didn't have those. They had one lead where if you maybe squinted, you could convince yourself there was something, but it didn't actually meet these criteria. And then the last thing you can see is this apparent long QT that uh, is actually from fusion of those T and U waves. And so really you can think of it as a long QU interval rather than the, the long QT you may be uh, tricked into thinking you're seeing. So for this patient, he was admitted to the ICU for hypokalemia. And by the time he got there, he had gotten 70 MEQs of PO potassium and 60 MEQs IV. His labs were rechecked on arrival and the BMP still showed a K of lower than assay, of less than 1.5. And his whole blood potassium was just 1.9. He barely budged. And I feel like in med school and residency, I've been taught that whenever you don't get the expected response to your interventions, you should take a diagnostic timeout and make sure that you're actually addressing the underlying issue. Jeff, as our nephrology consultant, can you help walk us through your approach to severe hypokalemia like this? Yeah, absolutely. So when you get a case like this, you know, the true outlier of, you know, you kind of, it kind of stops you in your tracks, you know, you just, you don't know what to do really. And, and when you get in those situations, I completely agree with this idea of the diagnostic timeout. You really just have to get back to basics and sort out for yourself. How did this patient get into this situation? And, and, and truly, you know, we use our, our history taking skills to try to get at something unusual about um, this patient's presentation, but sometimes the story is not clear, you know, whether that has to do with, you know, altered mental status or 
uh, just not really realizing that something's been going on for some period of time. So it's always important to go back to the basic physiology of how we deal with our electrolytes. What does our body do? And specifically for potassium, there's really only three ways to get hypokalemic. Either you're not taking in enough or you're not absorbing it. You're putting out too much of it or you're excreting it or you're shifting it within your body. So you're bringing it from the extracellular space, from the intravascular space back into cells. So, you know, if, if you're thinking about this from a broad sense, either you're not taking it in, it's not in your diet and you're barely eating or taking anything in, there's profound intracellular shift from, from potassium that really mostly lives inside the cells and a small amount lives in that extracellular space or there's some issue with um, absorption or excretion in either the GI tract or the GU system, the, the urine. You know, so you're either wasting it through your uh, a diarrhea or diarrheal illness or through excess urine. Thanks so much, Jeff. And it's so helpful to really have a short system to think about and have in our back pocket when we're thinking about a critical scenario such as our patient today. It's also important to remember about shifting versus wasting. And I feel like in the ICU, this most comes up with DKA when the total body potassium is usually low, but initial testing can look like it's high due to extracellular shifts of potassium. The treatment in DKA, one which includes insulin, can cause an intracellular shift and on subsequent wheat checks will reveal the true magnitude of hypokalemia. One thing I always look at in patients with hypo or hyperkalemia is their acid-base status to help me think about if there are just intracellular or extracellular shifts. And other things to consider, such as renal tubular acidosis, can often drive changes in potassium, so that's something else to consider on the differential. In our case, the serum bicarbonate is a bit high, so I definitely want an ABG for an accurate acid-base assessment. For if anything else that you think of in cases such as ours today. Another thing that I always remember is to check additional electrolytes. Jeff, you already told us about magnesium and how important that can be. Uh, and it can be a driver of low K. In, uh, symptoms of very low K can also kind of be mimicked by another electrolyte that we often forget about being low. Uh, but FOS uh, can have symptoms that are similar. So it's another thing that I'm always going to check. I think the, the key thing to remember is why we care about all these things. At the end of the day, we're going to give the patient a bunch of potassium. It, it, you know, we know that the patient's potassium is low. We have an ability to replete it, so we're going to do that aggressively, uh, and we want to and we want to make sure that we're doing that in a safe way. Sometimes in certain conditions, you can get a rebound hyperkalemia if we're doing that too much, and if we haven't identified the cause of what's driving the low K. So we want to think through through these things first, so we can safely treat the patient. Uh, patients are really at high risk for that rebound if they have intracellular shifts as a cause or redistributive hyperkalemia. And so that, that's, you know, on the list of things that we're going to be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing when I was taking care of this patient that I was reading about during the case was something called hypokalemic periodic paralysis. So hypokalemia in and of itself can cause muscle weakness but there's also this rare neuromuscular disorder characterized by attacks of low potassium that cause proximal muscle weakness and sometimes even respiratory weakness. And these attacks are triggered by exercise, stress, sometimes even just a carb-heavy meal. It can often uh, occur, or rather it often occurs in patients with thyrotoxicosis, and it's usually inherited, but it could be acquired later in life. 
a big concern with these patients, just like you said, Dave, is that rebound hyperkalemia after repletion. Because for them, their hypokalemia is driven by an exaggerated intracellular shift. For our patient, they had a normal TSH, so thyrotoxicosis was rolled out. And even though hypokalemic periodic paralysis is rare, it and other shifting disorders remained on our differential. So the next big thing to figure out is whether our patient had significant potassium wasting, since patients with this need lots of K, and those with uh, hypokalemic periodic paralysis or some other shifting disorder don't. So then thinking back to, to Jeff's framework, our patient had no diarrhea to cause any GI losses and no clear cause of malabsorption. So now we had to next consider renal wasting. Yeah. And uh, anytime I have a patient like this, I feel like I'm always pushing them like, are you sure you have no diarrhea? Because it's a lot easier for me to sort out. I definitely get confused when we get to sort of the renal wasting. So Jeff, I'm hoping you can help us out again and let us know how we kind of look into this. I feel like I've heard a million different tests we look for, but urine studies can always get complex. So what would you look for to see if we were renal wasting potassium? Yeah, totally. So urine electrolytes, I think, are uh, inherently challenging uh, for most people to comprehend because they're always changing, right? I mean, they're, they're totally dependent on the, the current clinical situation. There are no normal values, so it's very hard to interpret them kind of in and of, the, of themselves. So we're often checking a few of them at a time so that we can interpret them in context. Uh, you know, I often walk into a, a consult where you know, a full panel of urine electrolytes have been checked just as like they were serum electrolytes, but, but that's not helpful. You have to really have a sense of the ones that you care about so that you can interpret them in the right clinical context. So the urine potassium actually is impossible to interpret by itself. The, the measurement of the urine potassium is based on how concentrated the urine is. So for example, if someone is volume depleted and their urine is appropriately concentrated, then you might actually overestimate the urinary potassium concentration, and that would incorrectly lead you toward a a diagnosis of potassium wasting. And in order to correct for this um, concentration change, many have used the urine osmolality and something called the transtubular potassium gradient uh, to correct for this. But it turns out that this measurement has actually fallen out of favor in recent years. And instead, we've turned to a more familiar ratio, which is a urine potassium to creatinine ratio in the same way that we correct other electrolytes for creatinine excretion. And creatinine is predictably excreted in the urine. This is why when you check a albumin to creatinine ratio, it's giving you a better sense of their albumin area rather than checking it by itself. But you have to be super careful about the units when you use a urinary potassium to creatinine ratio because they're often in two different units. You have to be careful that the urine AK isn't in milliequivalents or milligrams or grams or millimoles. You need to make sure the units are the same in the numerator and the denominator. But suffice it to say that once you get that sorted out, the lower the ratio, the more appropriate the response of the kidneys is in hypokalemia. You don't want to be wasting potassium when you are hypokalemic. So a low urinary potassium to creatinine ratio means that there is no urinary wasting of potassium and vice versa. If it's quite high, when someone has hypokalemia, you'd be quite concerned that would be an inappropriate loss of potassium. But also the urine sodium and chloride can be helpful here too. But before I go on, let me get a little bit more info from you guys. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I love that point about how much the urine uh, electrolytes change. I just had a case of hyponatremia, which we haven't done on on this show yet, but I'm sure we will. And I was talking to the ED provider, who's a friend and a very you know a very thoughtful doctor. And the first thing he said was like, "I got urine lights," and it was before I hung any fluid. And I was like, "Oh, this is the best. We have a natural you know expression of it." So, um, yeah. So, Luke, what did the, this patient's urine study show? Well, his spot urine potassium to creatinine ratio was around 14 at the time of their first MICU urine studies, which is a little high. The urine sodium itself was around 40, and the initial urine chloride was even higher, but on repeat studies actually became quite low. Overall, with a high urine potassium of 15, that high urine potassium to creatinine ratio, his urine studies were felt to reflect K-wasting. They had a VBG with a pH of 7.45 and a PCO2 of 44, and his bicarb was between 25 and 29 the entire admission. Jeff, what do you think of all these labs? Oh, man, I love me a good acid-base problem. You just, like, softballed that one to me. I love it. So so this, um, just very quickly, you know, VBG is just fine. ABG is probably a little better, but, you know, this pH is 7.45 and the PCO2 of 44 that's pointing me towards a primary metabolic alkalosis. And based on the compensation rules, um, which aren't great with metabolic alkalosis, but this looks like an appropriate respiratory compensation. So we were worried before a little bit about, you know, the shortness of breath and the you know, diaphragmatic involvement, but it seems like the, the breathing part of things is, is actually okay here. And I agree about this conclusion of the potassium wasting you know, the high urine sodium and chloride are actually leading me towards this diuretic-like effect. We were talking about the thiazide that he had on board. You can get this from loop diuretics as well, or you can also see this in their genetic equivalents, right? You've heard of Barter's and Gittleman's syndromes. These are the, the genetic equivalents of a thiazide or a loop diuretic in which um, the clinical um, syndrome will look very much like someone is taking these diuretics. But that's often seen... Um, at some other point, although it is possible to manifest itself in a presentation like this. So what happens here is that more and more sodium is being delivered to the distal nephron, the sort of far reaches of the collecting duct, and this leads to increasing potassium losses as you deliver more and more sodium. And the point you made about the urine chloride starting high and then becoming low actually clinches this for me, because once that diuretic effect starts to wear off, your urine electrolytes will change because the effects of that resulting hypovolemia, right, that you kind of want to achieve with the diuretic, they can finally have that desired effect, which is unopposed by the thiazide being on board. And all this angiotensin II, part of the RAS activation, results in increased sodium reabsorption. And that happens both proximally and it decreases the um, distal delivery there. So the potassium excretion actually slows down once you decrease the amount of sodium that's reaching that part of the nephron. And the chlorides reabsorb too. So this hypokalemia is actually going to get much easier to correct once that thiazide starts to wash out. And um, even though he'll st still need a ton of repletion, it's going to get much easier and it'll start to rise more quickly. 
Oh, that's great. I mean, I think this is a really interesting, you know, we have this young patient comes in with symptoms that could be this rare disease, but that comes up, you know, not uh, so uncommonly for the ICU of hypokalemic periodic paralysis, where if we treat it just so aggressively, we could actually be doing harm. And now we actually have a thoughtful approach and we've kind of worked through the urine electrolytes and feel a little bit more comfortable saying, even though it kind of looks like that, it's probably not just sort of severe K wasting what's going on. So, so Luke, what happened with this patient? Well, by the time he got to the ICU, he'd gotten 130 MEQs of potassium and was still hypokalemic. But overall, he got better. He ended up needing over 500 MEQs of K while he was admitted over about 72 hours. 420 of those came in the first 36 hours. His K normalized and he was called out to the floor. There was no rebound hyperkalemia. Again, more consistent with that total body potassium depletion rather than uh, hypokalemic periodic paralysis or, or some other shifting disorder. The patient was admitted over the weekend, but on Monday when his PCP's office opened, some collateral revealed that he had been on HCTZ for eight years, and labs in their system showed that he had become more hypokalemic over that time. He'd been prescribed KCLs and outpatient, but hadn't actually taken it for about a year prior to admission, and the thiazide was continued. Ultimately, he was discharged off HCTZ, and one year later, his K was stable and normal. There were no further episodes of low K or paralytic symptoms. This was overall, for me, just a really great reminder that thiazides cause hypokalemia via that increased distal sodium delivery, which causes increased K secretion, and that this is why a low-sodium diet is actually essential to the efficacy and also the safety of these really common drugs. Thanks so much, Luke. That was a great pearl from today and really appreciate you sharing this case. This was a cool case and glad we got to go over it on Palm Peeps today and also have our first nephrologist on the show. Um, I think my um, learning point from today was Jeff's simple approach to thinking of the three ways someone can get hypokalemia. And again, uh, those were number one, not enough intake or absorption. Number two, too much output or excretion. And number three, intracellular shift of potassium from the serum. Farf, what about you? What's your takeaway from today? And I think for me, mine will be uh, just what you taught us, Luke, about the hypokalemic periodic paralysis, that you know, profound muscle weakness in the setting of low K could just be from one of these other causes, but it can be this rare condition that we have to consider because it's going to influence one, their rate of recurrence, but two, how we're going to treat it. And Jeff, what about you? Yes, the urine electrolytes, I think, are, were a huge help in this case. You know, the, they are daunting for sure. They can be challenging to interpret, but when in the right hands and with a, a real systematic approach, they're so incredibly helpful. And actually, there are a variety of electrolyte abnormalities that they can be helpful um, in interpreting as well. So whenever you're in doubt, give your friendly nephrologist a call. And I guarantee you, if you say that you want to talk about some urine electrolytes with them, they will be really excited to help you out. <laughs> I love it. And I feel like I, I just get my friendly nephrologist a call when I want another smart person involved in the case. So I sometimes I just get electrolytes and then call you guys just to have you around. <laughs> Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Jeff, for coming on. I think, Luke, you're going to be more involved with Palm Peeps. So everybody, you'll have some future episodes with Luke, which will be great. Uh, we uh, appreciate you listening to the episode. Check out our website, www.palmpeeps.com, for all our old episodes and radiology rounds. And uh, we'll see you next time.
episode was produced, recorded, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor, and the music was original music made by Eric Rogers.